today on Ag News Daily. They've been dry for the last 90 days plus. They've been very dry the last 30 days. Keep in mind that Europe fertilizer supplies are very tight. Prices are much higher than they were here. Farmers reduced their application rates for fertilizer. So we're looking at a 15 to 30 percent reduction potentially in corn production out of Europe. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. And welcome to the Ag News Daily Podcast, sponsored today by Kubota. Together, we do more. Delaney Howell joined today by Cassidy Zirkel. And it's just the girls today. Cassidy, is Tanner is off on vacation this week. Yes, Delaney, I'm excited to be at Girls Club all week. I think we'll have a lot of fun. We certainly will. And I think we're both back up and feeling 100%. We both had COVID last week, unfortunately, the beginning part of the week. Now we're in full force, I think. Yes, finally. It was rough there for a second. (laughs) And it didn't help, Cassidy, that we had really hot temperatures last week. Absolutely. It was super hot here as well. And it continues to be really hot here in central southern Missouri. How is it there in Iowa? It is quite warm, Cassidy, and that is going to be continuing to be the trend as we get into August here. Expected to be hot and dry. You know, today actually we got a little bit of a break, but as August begins, more than 51% of the lower 48 states are suffering from some form of drought capacity. And the top 18 corn growing states that we see in the weekly crop conditions report, D4 exceptional drought has been reported in three of those top corn producing states, Texas, Kansas, and Nebraska. Well, of course, we're in one of the longest stretches for drought in the western portion of the United States. And so as we look here for the week ending August 6th last week, this was the fourth hottest first week of August in 30 plus years. So temperatures soared into triple digits last week, primarily across western and central Corn Belt. And that's expected to continue suit here into the key month of August as we see crops continuing to fill out. Yes, Delaney, and this drought is not only affecting crop progress and crop yields, but also the pasture land in the lower southern states. Of course, I've been talking about on the podcast since the early spring the fires hitting my home state and now in day 241 of fire season Texas is on pace for a possible record-setting year on number of wildfires seen this year. That is crazy to think about Cassidy. It absolutely is because as long as I've been around and that I can remember fires have been a really common thing throughout Texas and to think that this year is more than any other year or close to it is insane. It certainly is, Cassidy. But another thing that's insane is the amount of farmland that could go towards urbanization or non-ag uses. For 15 years prior to 2016, the U.S. lost about 2,000 of acres of farmland or ranch land every day. And that trend led to about 11 million acres no longer being farmable. Reports are suggesting that if that same pace happens between 2016 and 2040, that's an area roughly the size of South Carolina that will be flipped from farmland to commercial and residential development and is likely ground we will never get back into agricultural production. Yes, Delaney, I remember Tanner touching on that topic last week, and that is some 
not so great news for us in the farming and agriculture world, but along the lines of farmland and its uses, I read that the climate tax and health care bill that passed on Sunday dedicates $20 billion towards USDA's Voluntary Land Stewardship Program. I saw that piece of news as well, Cassidy. Do we know what exactly that those dollars will go towards specifically, though? I didn't see any specifics in the article that I saw, but I will definitely check on it and give our listeners an update tomorrow. Fantastic. Yes, we saw quite a bit of legislation headlining over the weekend as the Senate passed the Inflation Reduction Act as well. Uh, this is a massive climate tax and health care bill with nearly $40 billion titled to go to agriculture specifically. Um, they added about $4 billion for drought resilience. They added or earmarked, like Cassidy said there, some dollars uh, for various existing USDA programs. And some of those specific programs included the Environmental Quality Incentives Program, the Regional Cons- Conser- uh, Conservation Partnership Program, lots of different acronym programs. But they also really see- sought in this piece of legislation to bolster rural clean energy and economic growth with $14 billion to spend towards rural development with grants and things to help improve rural electric cooperatives and renewable energy products, and quite a few other mouthfuls of different dollars that this bill was earmarked for over the weekend. Well, Delaney, staying on the concept and topic of bills, I also noticed that a bill called the Ag Appropriations Bill was introduced last week. And it shows $2.3 million more spending than 2022 and incre- includes increases for multiple things, including climate research, and it doubles funding for women and minorities in STEM. Interesting. I hadn't seen that piece of legislation, but I know that folks are really trying to get things pushed out here before the August recess. So no surprise there that we saw quite a bit of a news dump when it came to legislation. Yes, Lainey, I agree. There was a lot of legislation news and probably even more that we'll be covering over the next weeks, like you said, as people are trying to get more pushed out. Well, Cassidy, before you get to your next piece of news here, I want to remind folks that today we are sponsored by Kubota. Farming demands well-built Kubota equipment that's proven for over a century. Tractors that are adaptable and versatile hay tools backed by a two-year warranty Sidekick utility vehicles where durability meets speed and productive SSV skid steers. Visit your local Kubota dealer for a demo today. Well, Delaney, speaking of Kubota, I read an article talking about, which we have discussed this a lot on the podcast lately, Precision Ag and the ability that it's giving hackers and criminals to work into the food system and threaten our food safety. This also opens up room for new policies to be made and academic work to be made to help our farmers and big corporations protect themselves from the technology and hacking abilities that Precision Ag give criminals. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, as you look at what's going on right now with uh, China and Taiwan, obviously China's a pretty up there when it comes to abilities to hack into infrastructure. And our food system is one of the easiest ways that 
we could easily see some sort of political warfare go on. But Cassidy, we did finally see China over the weekend finished up those quote unquote exercises that they had been practicing only to be followed by an announcement of a fresh round of military drills going on in Taiwan today, or in the airspace and seas surrounding Taiwan, I should say. They have live fire exercises that have been set up and rescheduled. They said they didn't quite finish yet, and there's no known deadline for this newest round of military exercises focused on anti-submarine and sea assault operations, but tensions are high at this point. They've made it difficult, not impossible, but very difficult for any international flights to reach Taiwan. And they've also essentially shut down water shipments due to these sea exercises that are going on. So they've certainly really started to beat their chest and uh, shown their strength here. And you know, not, Taiwan is nearly self-sufficient when it comes to key food staples, but they're very dependent upon energy imports. They only produce about 12% of their total energy needs domestically. And so as they continue to have no end in sight to this newest round of Chinese exercises, that's going to be the conversation is where this energy comes from if China continues to move forward with these quote-unquote practices or exercises that are going on right now. Yeah, Delaney, I'm sure this will be a continued topic of conversation for us and everyone else in agriculture, because if Russia, Ukraine has taught us anything, it's how much someone else's war can affect us and the entire global market. So that will be something to keep our thumbs on and see how it starts to affect our global market in agriculture. Absolutely, Cassidy. But I tell you what, I'm pretty much out of news for today other than chatting commodity markets. What about you? Yeah, before you jump into markets real quick, Delaney, I wanted to give a little bit of anecdotal news. There was a science experiment conducted where a group of farmers sent some grapevines as well as some bottles of wine to space, to the International Space uh, station in 2020 to kind of see what the effects of no gravity would be on these crops. And not only did they find that the wine tastes better after being stored at no gravity, but they've also found that most of the vines they sent to space have developed a better ability to fight off diseases that are really common in grapevines as of lately. So this could be a pretty substantial amount of research that they're doing with gravity-free crops, and I'll be excited to see what other crops they tested on next. Maybe, Cassidy, we'll see in our lifetime businesses or growers buying farmland on the moon. Maybe so. I definitely will not be visiting. I am absolutely <laughs> terrified of space, but it's exciting to see what it could do for our industry. Yes, I agree. That would not be high on my list to see that, but Perhaps others would be excited at that new challenge. But I tell you what, speaking of a challenge, the markets had a challenge today getting into some positive territory aside from the wheat market, which really pulled grains up along with it or certainly tried to. September Chicago wheat added four pennies today to close at 7.79 and three quarters. Dees wheat added four pennies to close at 7.99. New crop corn closed lower on the day, down two and three quarters cents at 607 and a quarter. 
New crop soybeans down eight and three quarters cents to close right on the nose at $14 today, while livestock had the opposite story green across the screen. October live cattle added 35 cents to close at 144.22 and a half. Dece live cattle added 47 and a half to close at 154.45. And in the feeder cattle market today, the September feeder pit added $2.22 to close at 185.65. October feeders added $1.75 to close at a buck 87.70. And in lean hogs today, October added $1.90 to close at $100.30. December lean hogs added 90 cents to close at 89.72 and a half. And Cassidy, before I get to our conversation today with Arlen Suderman, I wanted to remind folks we are sponsored today by Kubota. Farming demands well-built equipment, Kubota equipment that's proven for over a century. Tractors that are adaptable and versatile, hay tools backed by a two-year warranty, sidekick utility vehicles where durability meets speed and productive SSV skid steers. Visit your local Kubota dealer for a demo today. Well, folks, for today's Market Monday conversation, we're chatting with Arlen Suderman, the Chief Commodities Economist for StoneX. Arlen, how are you doing today? Pretty good, Delaney. It's great to be back with you again. Absolutely great to have you, Arlen, because there are no shortage of topics to talk about today, as usual, it seems like. Arlen, we are recording this early in the afternoon on Monday before the crop conditions report comes out this afternoon. But what are you expecting to see on today's report? I'm going to expect to see a little deterioration. Um, We certainly have had deterioration in the West question is how that will balance out with some pretty good conditions to the east overall and generally. We normally see some deterioration this time of year. And so I think the deterioration in the west is a little bit more normal. We've had some areas in the east doing very well. We've had some areas get some rains that were very timely and should boost it. But I think the net effect is that we'll see some modest reduction in the national crop uh, for both corn and soybeans. Now, One of the things that we'll see kind of easing that in the West is I think a lot of the deterioration will be what's already below the good to excellent. So what's in the fair category may drop into the poor or very poor or something like that. So that's kind of holding me back from saying more significant losses in the good to excellent. In Ireland, later this week, we'll see the August WASDE report. Are we expecting to see any adjustments to yield at this point in time? I think we can expect adjustments simply from the standpoint that the August report uses a totally different methodology in order to determine yield. Whereas to this point, the WASD team has been using their own model to determine what a trend yield should be, and they deviated a little bit from that back in the May report and stuck with the 177 bushel corn yield uh, and 51.5 bushel soybean yield. But in this report, USDA NAS has responsibility for the yield. Now, they no longer survey fields for the August report, as you know. They wait until September to do that, but they do survey farmers, they do look at satellite data, and they do um, look at their own modeling, and they put all those three components together to come up with a yield. My sense is that we'll see a very modest decrease in yield. Um, I think, you know, our customer survey-based yield was at 176, and I think that's probably pretty close to where USDA will come in. If there's a surprise in this report, I think it's more likely to be a surprise on the acreage side than on the yield side, considering that they resurveyed 
located in Minnesota and the Dakotas in July with the results to come into this report for planted acreage, I've written in a 450,000 acre reduction in planted corn acres on my balance sheet. We'll see what USDA shows from their survey. Now, Arlen, looking at today's trade action in particular, certainly saw wheat leading the market today higher. What was going on in, in that market? Well, the, of course, wheat has come down a long ways, and so we're at pre-war levels now. We've totally removed all of the war premium that was in there, and part of that's because we're seeing some movement of grain out of Ukraine right now, although very little, if any, has been wheat to this point. That'll be more of a factor next month. But I think one of the things we keep in mind is just before the war started, we thought India was going to have a a huge wheat crop in that if Ukraine wheat got shut off the world market, India would be able to export wheat. Well, then they got hit by some very hot weather that really took off the, the top off their crop. And now they're having record high wheat prices domestically. And of course, people don't like in food inflation. And so India is looking to take off its 40% import tariffs on wheat, which means they could see wheat imports at a time when we thought they would be available to help fill the gap of what Ukraine can't fill. So putting a little bit of a premium back into the market based on that. And we had some very strong wheat exports uh, and reported in the uh, Monday morning weekly export export inspection report as well. In addition to some pretty strong soybean exports as well, wheat exports, um, I believe, what was at a several month high, and uh, soybeans at uh, at about a four month high. Yeah. Now, speaking of exports, Arlen, we're getting close to this marketing year, year end, August 31st. Where are we sitting as far as corn and soybean exports go as to where USDA expected us to be? Well, if you just look at the inspection data, it looks like corn and soybeans should fall short. Um, But the one thing that doesn't show up in the inspection data is all the corn that gets shipped that doesn't get inspected. The Census Bureau data picks up on that. It's about six weeks behind. Right now, it's showing that actual corn shipments are almost 300 million bushels above what the inspection data shows. So I think we're going to end up bumping the corn export number, maybe as much as 30 to 40 million bushels. Soybeans, it's the opposite situation. Yes, we are shipping more soybeans um, than what the inspection data is showing by about 54 million bushels, but we're still running shy. Now, we had a big export inspection number that came out today, and if we can continue that the rest of the month, we can go ahead and close the gap and hit USDA's target. But if this was just an aberration, and I just looked, Brazil's still shipping a lot of soybeans right now. If this was just an aberration, um, then we're probably going to run short by about 30 million bushels. So it's relatively close in the big picture of things, but it does look like we still have some more adjustments to go. Now, do you expect today's report be uh, number Was it an aberration or do you think this is kind of the new norm for the next couple of weeks? Well, I do expect to see a big pickup as we get into September when Brazil supplies really start to tighten up and we've got a price advantage. I, uh, on the August 
they Brazil still has a price advantage. So it was interesting to note that yes, China's shipments did pick up somewhat. I think it's around nine million bushels of soybeans, but it was the non-China business that was most impressive. Countries like Germany, uh, big importer of U.S. soybeans during the week. Um, some places that have a freight advantage pulling from the United States, starting to pull from us rather than from Brazil. And I think that could keep us fairly strong and help close the gap a little bit as we go through the next several weeks. Arlen, heading into harvest season, obviously we've pulled back pretty substantially in new crop corn and soybeans for some of the summer highs we saw earlier this year. What's the trading range going to be looking like here in new crop corn heading into harvest season? It really comes down to this grain fill period we're currently in. And I'm going to give an opposite example. Is it 2017, I believe, where we were relatively dry across the Midwest. And so the, the crop condition ratings were kind of showing a poor crop. Um, the expectations were that we had fallen short of of, uh, of a trend yield, but it was very mild temperature wise. And so we had we extended the grain field period of time and we increased seed size for both corn and soybeans. And so the final yields came in quite a bit higher than what was anticipated. That's all because of the grain field. You change seed size by three, four, five percent, you're going to change yield by that same amount. Well, this year it's kind of the opposite. Yes, we're cool in the eastern Midwest, but west of the Mississippi, we've been warm and we're expected to, you know, right now we've cooled down with the latest front to come through. But overall, the rest of the month is expected to be on the warm side, continuing to speed up maturation of the crops. You do that, that tends to give you a little bit smaller seed size. So I think we're going to probably end up looking at something smaller. How does that matter? Normally, it wouldn't matter that much. But if you look at a 5% reduction, just to give an example, in trend yield for soybeans, that would virtually wipe out USDA's ending stock estimate. That would suggest we need to go to higher prices, perhaps, than what we've seen in order to ration demand. Corn, it's not that dire of a situation, but if you get a three, four, five percent decline from trend yield, you really do start to tighten it up. And then when you start looking at the fact that Europe is in the middle of a significant drought, um, they've been very dry. They've been dry for the last 90 days plus. They've been very dry the last 30 days. And keep in mind that Europe fertilizer supplies are very tight. Prices are much higher than they were here. Farmers reduce their application rates for fertilizer. So we're looking at a 15 to 30% reduction potentially in corn production out of Europe. And I think as USDA starts to pick up on that, the market starts to see that. And if our tr- yields, I don't expect it in this report, but as we go to the September and October reports, start shrinking the size of the U.S. crop and then get the realization of a shorter European crop, that's when I think the market could start putting a little bit more premium back into the corn market to make sure we balance supply and demand for the coming year. And speaking of a premium, these cattle markets, you know, live cattle especially have been on a bit of a tear really over the last year. We've seen pretty elevated prices. We're seeing unusually high prices given this late in the grilling season that we are. What's holding up the live cattle markets right now, Arlen? Interesting dynamics that we've seen this year because you have to throw inflation in there and you have to throw in what's been happening in stock market because 
typically the consumer sentiment is based on what's happening with the stock market. They have increased confidence in the economy when the stock market's doing well and vice versa. How does that relate to the meat market? Well, when their confidence is high, they tend to want to buy the higher cuts of meat, steak instead of hamburger, especially in grilling season. When confidence is low, it's the opposite. And we saw that play out this spring where demand for steaks really seemed to decline as inflation was really heating up. But as we got into the summer, it seems like the consumer has come back. We've had more demand for those higher cuts of meat. We call them the middle cuts of meat once again, more demand for the steaks. And uh, that has really helped the, the whole beef market and the structure of the beef market. So it's held up pretty well through the summer. Now we're getting into a time as we move into the fourth quarter where we start to see the effects of the cow liqu- cowherd liquidation that we've been doing for the last year and a half. And that cowherd liquidation hasn't really slowed down at all. In fact, the latest weekly data showed 82,000 cows um, slaughtered. And that's the second highest of this year. So we're slaughtering a lot of cows. We're shrinking the cow herd. And as we go into the fourth quarter of this year, we should start seeing a decrease in number of feeder cattle available for the feedlots. And as we go into 2023, we should really see that tighten up dramatically in the year ahead. And we're starting to see that out, play out down the feeder cattle market and the fat cattle markets having to respond in order to keep margins profitable enough to keep people feeding those cattle. Fantastic, Carlin. Well, thanks again for your time today. Before I let you go, if folks want to pick your brain, follow along with some of the thoughts you're sharing, how can they find you? Uh, they can find me at stonex.com. Or follow me on Twitter. My handle is Arlen, A-R-L-A-N-F-F-101. Fantastic. Arlen, thanks again for joining today. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Delaney. Well, Delaney, that was a great talk of markets with you and Arlen. I appreciate you going over all of that with him and letting our listeners in on a great Market Monday segment there. Absolutely. I feel a little behind on the markets since I've been out uh, for the past couple of weeks, Cassidy, but always great to have Arlen get me back up and our listeners back up to speed on what's been going on there. Absolutely. And listeners, be sure to leave some reviews on wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at Ag News Daily. Absolutely, folks. With that, should we let the people go, Cassidy? Let them go.